Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Robert Anderson, professor of law at Pepperdine University. We'll be discussing his article, The C Corporation, which I'll add a link to in the show notes for the episode. Rob, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. Rob, this article has a very intriguing title. It identifies an interesting type of corporation that maybe we don't think about all that often, or we haven't thought about up to this point before reading your article. Before we get to that, I want to level set a little bit with some discussion about maybe what we might call the modern corporation, the business entity that people are familiar with today, whether it's a big publicly traded company or whether it's more of a mom and pop type corporation. I wonder if you could introduce the modern corporation as a business entity. What are some of its defining legal and economic attributes? Why has it come to be such an important vehicle for organization in modern economies? And why has it maybe supplanted more traditional types of business entities like the general partnership? It's customary in business associations classes to define the corporations by a set of features. It could be four or five or six, depending on how you count, that are essentially differentiated from pre-existing forms of business organization. In the 1800s, there were, early 1800s at least, very few corporations, many sole proprietorships, which aren't a formal entity at all, and quite a few partnerships, what we call now a general partnership of two or more persons carrying on as co-owners of business for a profit. And those forms worked well for simple, small scale businesses, but they weren't very well suited towards raising large amounts of money for larger projects from investors who are scattered all over the place and who weren't able to exercise direct monitoring over a company. And we'll see why this is relevant later. There also didn't lend themselves very well to creditors being able to extend credit to them and monitor that credit at low cost. And so it's customary in business associations classes to talk about these features that define the corporation. The idea that the corporation has legal personality is treated for some purposes as a person that's able to make contracts, sue and be sued and so forth. It has a duration or that's perpetual. In other words, it doesn't just sunset after a certain period of time unless you provide otherwise. It has limited liability. And this has been in some ways, when you look at the history of corporations, had been thought as the most important feature. The shares are freely transferable, so people can buy shares and sell them. They can be traded on exchanges. And because of the limited liability, it doesn't matter who buys them or sells them because the assets of the corporation are separated from those of its shareholders. It has a centralized management, so it's not managed like a partnership of just one person, one voice, as an agent. Instead, it has a set of professional managers. And those managers are appointed by the investors, the shareholders, and elected by them, typically by majority rule. And then the final one, which was not historically in all of the textbooks, but now is essentially, is the concept of capital lock-in or entity shielding. And I think we'll talk probably a lot more about this later, but essentially it's the inverse of limited liability. Limited liability prevent creditors of the corporation from going after the shareholders. And capital lock-in and entity shielding 
prevents creditors of the shareholders from getting their hands on the assets of the corporation to satisfy their claims and thereby reducing the corporation's value as a going concern. So that's an introduction to the modern corporation, and we've probably taught this many times as a corporate law professor. In recent years, you've taken an interest in a different area of law, and that's maritime and admiralty law, perhaps a class that many people who've gone to law school weren't able to get around to taking. Could you talk a little bit about your motivation for exploring this field of law and introduce the concept of the C corporation that you talk about in this paper and the role that it might fill in maritime and admiralty law? Just what are maritime and admiralty law is maybe a good background point as well. And why are we talking about this on a business scholarship podcast? Great question. Most people, even who've graduated from law school, really aren't all that familiar with what admiralty and maritime law is. They are aware, of course, that there's international law that relates to ships, and they're aware that there's a shipping industry and so forth, and that it has a long history. But admiralty and maritime law, as I'm looking at it in this paper, is really the private international law of ships and shipping. It governs the contracts, torts, and other private law topics that relate to ships and shipping, where international law deals with the more public law um, questions of uh, war and peace and territory and all that sort of thing. And if you take a maritime law class, a very large chunk of it is essentially torts and in a different context. There's another section that's contracts in a different context. And then lots and lots of jurisdiction and procedure. And the reason for that is that a maritime law is its own separate area of law, but it has a uniquely federal jurisdiction that goes back to the Constitution and the Judiciary Act of 1789. And therefore, federal courts play a very important role in admiralty jurisdiction, in some cases having exclusive jurisdiction over matters. And one in particular is the maritime lien and the in rem action, which in many ways can be thought of as the core of admiralty law, because what the in-rep action in the maritime lien allows someone to do is to sue the ship as a defendant. And although that might not seem like a great feature for the ship owner, actually, in some ways it is because it enables the ship to have legal personality and to enter into commitments itself on its own credit with creditors that allows it to continue to operate. Maritime law, as it's developed in the United States for a long time, had as a guiding principle the idea of keeping ships moving, that they couldn't be idle, they needed to keep moving, and they would show up in far-flung ports where the owner wasn't known to anyone at all, and they needed the ship itself needed to be able to borrow money on its own credit in order to buy materials and so forth and get services and keep it moving to the next destination. When you do that with a ship, you create a maritime lien and the ship itself is liable for the contractor or the tort in some cases. And that is what creates a legal personality for the ship and actually, in effect, allowed shipping to operate in a world where owners couldn't be contacted and credit couldn't be checked and letters of credit couldn't be issued, the ships could borrow on their own credit, almost like a person, and they could be arrested and sold to satisfy those debts if necessary. And effectively, my argument in this paper is that that was a form of business organization that had all of the features of the modern corporation in a rudimentary form, not as refined as they are now, but that effectively maritime law had discovered, not through anyone's ingenuity, but just by trial and error, 
maritime law had discovered all these economic features that later would make the corporation so successful. This concept of a C corporation of the maritime lien, it responds particularly to a time in which communication was much harder. The world was a bigger place in some respects in terms of the time it took to communicate and the difficulty of that. There's a lot of history in the paper and there's a lot of history underlying this world, but could you maybe introduce how the C corporation, how the maritime lien, the idea of a ship as its own legal person developed over time? You, you talked a little bit about some of the needs that it responded to, but who are some of the players and what places and times did this body of law develop and this concept of the ship as its own entity develop? First off, what's really, I think, valuable to point out is how it didn't develop. And it didn't develop the same way that corporations in the United States developed and to some extent corporations in England developed, which was through a charter issued by a sovereign. The corporation in the United States cannot be formed informally. They have to be chartered. Originally, this was through colonial and then state legislatures and then later as a matter of course through a state agency. But all of the limited liability entities in the United States are chartered in some way. They're pursuant to a sovereign's decree. And the C Corporation, basically a ship, was able to develop these forms of legal personality without any of that. So it did require the recognition of courts that maritime liens would exist and that they would trump other types of liens and debts against the ship. But the maritime lien, which basically evolved from medieval sea laws and really even before that, it, in 19th century England and then especially in 19th century America, evolved into a, a very coherent, well-developed system of entity law or business organization law centered around this maritime lien. In fact, you find the courts of the United States, especially the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, 1860s you see them rediscovering these medieval sea laws from France, Spain, and Italy, and England, and applying them to develop the admiralty and maritime law of the United States around the period. This sort of renaissance of those ideas, if you can call it that, it's inverse renaissance because they're drawing on medieval ideas, is what allowed this concept of the sea corporation, the maritime law of organizations, to reach what I think of as its most highly developed point in mid to late 19th century America. And what's interesting about it is around the same time, England, which gave rise to much of this law indirectly through other influences, turned its back on this concept of the legal personality of the ship and went in a different direction. But by that time, it had been so well established in the United States because of English precedents that it continued here. And it became quite the backbone of the developing American shipping industry, which was no longer just ocean shipping, but became river shipping as well. As the Mississippi opened up and other rivers, uh, steamboats, development of the steamboat gave quite an impetus for the development of these laws. And in fact, I think in some ways was the reason why this concept of the maritime organizational law reached its most developed point in the United States in the mid to late 1800s. We've had some background now on the modern corporation and this sea corporation, this ship as legal person, which raises maybe a comparative question. Could you talk about ways that the sea corporation and the modern corporation that we're perhaps more familiar with, some of their legal and economic attributes are similar 
are there areas where those attributes diverge? And to the extent that there's divergence, are there areas where one form of business entity has achieved more efficient or maybe more normatively desirable results? So I think the most important attributes where the two are very close and really maritime law developed all these attributes first, inconsistently to be sure, but definitely developed them first, are the idea of limited liability. There is a limited liability act that limits a ship owner's liability to the value of the ship. The free transferability of shares, which was not present in partnerships, which was the business organization of the day. And the shares and ships were freely transferable and in fact were traded on exchanges very early on in the 1600s because they were property interests rather than contract interests. They were freely alienable. And then the inverse of the limited liability, which is entity shielding developed by Hansman and Crackman in a series of articles. Now, I think one of the most celebrated discoveries of our generation, the idea that shielding assets of businesses from the creditors of the owners was absolutely essential to developing large-scale businesses that, that were going concerns because if the creditors of the owners could go in and grab assets of the business to satisfy claims against the owners, then the business it may be formally perpetual but is fragile. The capital isn't locked in. These three concepts are the main ones that I go through the evolution of them. And actually, they all center around this unique maritime lean concept, which is a little bit complicated to explain in a podcast, but it's essentially claims against the ship itself, as opposed to the owners or anyone else. Claims against the ship generate maritime liens, which are have higher priority than any land lien. And the maritime liens follow the ship around everywhere it goes, and they will even survive sale to a bona fide purchaser. And so the consequence of that is essentially making the ship into a formal legal entity in some ways that has all those attributes of the corporation. Now, you asked the question about how does it compare to the modern corporation? And the modern corporation is much more finely tuned and well-developed, obviously, because we've had the benefit of a legal development that didn't stop around 1900. But what's interesting about it is that the availability of the modern corporation in many ways validates, I think, the theory of the C corporation, because ships are often now held in corporate entities, one ship corporations. It's a common structure for holding ships. In some ways, you might say that kind of dismisses the value of the maritime organization. It does, but it validates the concept, which is that shipping companies think that one ship corporations are the efficient structure for owning a ship. And it's essentially replicating what the maritime law had already done before there were corporations you could use for that with almost all the same features, just more finely tuned because we have much more precedent, many more courts thinking about it, 100 plus years to work on it and fine tune things. And so I think the fact that corporations are now used for the same thing that the C corporation was once used for in many ways is a validation of the idea that maritime law at its core is essentially a form of business organization law. You note in the article that the C corporation and what I call the modern corporation in this interview developed in parallel, their origins developed in parallel. So one is not descended from the other, so to speak. I wonder if you could talk about the significance of the fact that C corporations and modern corporations, they were able to develop in parallel, yet have many similar legal economic attributes. What might that tell us about the economic theory of the corporation or business entities? What it tells us, and actually, you know, there are some other entities too that we could add into that. 
the trust was beginning to be used for business purposes around the same time, as well as the English Joint Stock Company, which is we think of as a corporation, but it really in some ways has different roots and is not a predecessor progenitor of the U.S. corporation. There were a bunch of different entities developing around the same time that were trying to solve problems that we had with the partnership, like not easily being able to transfer the partnership interests, the idea of one person, one vote, as opposed to majority rule by the value of the shares, as well as lack of limited liability. And very importantly, the lack of entity shielding or protection of the partnership's assets from the creditors of the partners. And so all of these different structures, I won't call them entities necessarily, were trying to solve similar problems and that the trust had solved it to some extent. The C corporation had solved it to, I think, the greatest extent. And I think what it shows is that these economic features that these entities share really are the essential ones to having a successful business on a larger scale. We were around the time of the industrial revolution just a little after so the need for large amounts of capital was becoming acute and the partnership was failing to serve those needs. And so I think what we saw was some of these developed organically, like the C Corporation, some developed because of the ingenuity of transaction lawyers, essentially, like the trust. And then eventually the corporation developed because government saw that it had a role in providing a solution to this. And so they were able to retool this old institution of the corporation, which had long been used for municipal or philanthropic or scholarly type endeavors, retool that into a business organization. And ultimately, with a charter from the state and general availability for any type of business, the corporation took over fairly quickly after it was introduced. And by the end of the 1800s, the corporation was becoming the dominant way of organizing larger scale businesses. And so that's the story of it. And I think what it tells us is that the economics of this, especially the needs of creditors to be able to monitor pools of assets that were partitioned off from other assets and borrowers was the key thing that was driving the success of the corporation, not limited liability or the development of fiduciary laws or anything like that. It was really a creditor-centered economic need that these businesses had. And that fits very well into the now classic work of Hansman and Crackman developing the concepts of asset partitioning. Could you talk about the implications for this paper for our understanding of corporate organizational law and maritime and admiralty law? And you were an early guest on this podcast back in the podcast's Salad Days, I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to that episode in which you talked about your paper, A Property Theory of Corporate Law. I found myself wondering as I was reading this paper, whether you found that your research on the C Corporation, whether it supports or counters some of the ideas that you explore in that article. Thoughts there? I think there are implications for both maritime law and for corporate law. For maritime law, there are many doctrines in maritime law whose purposes are hard to understand. They're very confusing and complicated. They seem antiquated. It seems like the reason they exist is just because they've existed for a long time. But actually, if you look at the ship as a business organization law concept, a lot of them make total sense, or at least more sense. And it becomes easier to resolve these otherwise very difficult problems in maritime law that have troubled courts for 
a century or more. And I think it's really just from a failure to see the ship in maritime law as explicitly a business organization like a corporation now. So we can take all the things we've learned about corporations and apply them to maritime law and improve that law and make the decisions easier to make. As far as like maritime law contributing ideas to corporate law, corporate law is far more developed now than maritime law ever was. But maritime law was more forward thinking and progressive in many areas, which might come as a surprise. The biggest example, I think, is the fact that corporations impose externalities on lots of parties, particularly the limited liability of them, right? So some parties who are harmed by corporations are going to go uncompensated and because of limited liability in most cases. But maritime law actually had developed different tiers of creditors that put, for example, the crew of the ship first or near first. I think usually salvage of the ship was actually first because that's just preserving the entity. And then the crew of the ship for their wages and certain other debts they own against the ship. And then tort creditors were privileged over contract creditors and still are to a large extent in the maritime law. And corporate law theorists and commercial law theorists have been trying to figure out how we solve these problems of limited liabilities, externalities on tort creditors in particular. And some people have even proposed a structure that's similar to what maritime law had developed, where tort creditors come before those other creditors. And whether it's a good idea or not can be resolved not just through theory, but through looking at how it actually worked in admiralty and maritime law when you put tort creditors first or non-adjusting creditors in general. And that's, I think, a really valuable illustration that hasn't been mined at all, as far as I can tell, by corporate and commercial law scholars to try to think about how to mitigate some of the problems that limited liability creates, because limited liability has great advantages. But there are some people who aren't really a party to the bargain. And maritime law found a way to put them higher. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview and from the paper? And are there open questions that you hope to maybe dig in on in the future? I think the implications that I'd like someone to take away is that there is a lot in maritime law that scholars have really just overlooked. So this is a field where the numbers of scholars have dwindled dramatically. There was once a time when almost every year Harvard or Yale law reviews would have maritime law articles. Some of the most celebrated scholars, the most celebrated admiralty book is Grant Gilmore and Charles Black, major scholars. And I think the fact that maritime law has become somewhat overlooked in the United States, it's not that much less important. It's just shifted overseas. And I think that has led us to just completely leave out a huge chunk of our legal history in the United States, not just in corporation law, that's probably the least expected place you would have found it, but in constitutional law and federal courts and jurisdiction, federalism, and all these different places. Because at one time, maritime law essentially was the bulk of interstate and foreign commerce in the United States. Understanding issues in United States history, primarily from the 1800s, constitutional law, jurisdiction, statutes, all these things, especially federalism, because it's a big, there's a big conflict of in federalism and admiralty. All these things can be enriched by study and attention to maritime law. And I hope that this might encourage some scholars to think there's something that they might be able to find there and to go research a little bit. And I think that is going to enrich many areas of law far beyond corporate law and asset partitioning.
Our guest today has been Robert Anderson, professor of law at Pepperdine University. We've discussed his article, The C Corporation, which I'll add a link to in the show notes for the episode. Rob, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.